are you interested in intergenerational equity? What do you think about the younger generation fighting for a better future? How can we use our own voices to inflict change on the urban environment? Stay tuned for answers from Amelia Gaska. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Amelia Gaskell, an environmental science student. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, sustainability, intergenerational equity, climate anxiety, her origin story, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Amelia Gaskell is an avid environmentalist and student at Deakin University who has recently undertaken an undergraduate Bachelor of Environmental Science following a transfer from a degree in law. This change was inspired by the desire to pursue a greater interest in sustainability and ecological conservation amidst a greater demand for youth action in addressing the critical point Australia now faces in addressing the growing climate crisis. Amelia has been volunteering with various organizations, experiences which have shaped her drive towards a better and more sustainable future for the city of Melbourne. Amelia is also a lover of all things outdoors and regularly partakes in athletics and hiking with local groups across Victoria. This passion for community and connection is one which has been fostered by her family, who only recently immigrated from Malaysia, and who share with her an understanding of the intricate relationships between people, the natural world, and the built environment. And with that, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I highly appreciate your appearance. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean? Before we start today, I'd just first like to begin by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people as the original custodians of this land by sharing stories and speech with each other through podcasts or face-to-face with our children, with our families. We pay homage and respect to their culture and their tradition of storytelling. And I think that it's really important to also acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and we live on stolen land in so-called Australia and pay our respects to emerging leaders, past leaders, present leaders and future leaders of Indigenous Australia. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share my thoughts and feelings about the future of cities, especially as someone living in Melbourne, Australia, which I think is a really important city to look at and watch the space of as we move forward with urban development across the globe and also within Australia, particularly because of our high population density. So I think for me, as a university student, the future of cities looks like something that's sustainable and accessible. And so I know that's something that I'm sure a lot of students in my position studying environmental science will be looking at as we move forward is intergenerational equity. And I think that is really fixated, obviously, around the kind of framework of the sustainable development goals, but they're a very broad framework and They're often hard to apply in nuance, especially in particular countries, because I remember we actually met earlier and we were talking about this and you said to me, everybody has this approach that they just try and apply as a one size fits all and it doesn't work that way because every city is different and every population is different and people in planning and development need to learn how to apply those nuances of socioeconomics and equity. And I agree. And I think the future of cities, it's hard to apply what the future of all cities looks like. But for Melbourne, at least what I can say is something I'd like to see for us moving forward and also Australia more broadly, because we're very fortunate to have a lot of space in our economy and our budget to allocate towards development and planning is urban consolidation. And I think that is something we should establish more legislative framework for. It's something we should work towards in our construction and infrastructure industries. And for example, today, I was just driving through the suburb of Mooney Ponds, for those who don't know where that is. Mooney Ponds is a little bit north of the Melbourne CBD 
it's not quite in the inner city region. It's just on the cusp. But I'd never really been there before. And there were so many shops. There were so many small businesses. They have a tram line that runs through Rooney Ponds. And they also have a railway station. And they have buses. And I was like, I thought that this centralized infrastructure, like the walkability of what Plan Melbourne is trying to look for in the 20-minute neighborhoods, I didn't really think that there was that much of that on the northern side of the city outside of the inner city region. And it was quite a pleasant surprise. And it actually made me think of what I was going to be talking about in this podcast today, because we should be aiming for that. And I think the future of cities looks like a consolidated urban area that's not only accessible, but it's sustainable because there's small businesses that are being supported by the area. There's public transport that allows accessibility in and out of the city. And there's a localized kind of region that the population can access. And I think for me, urban consolidation is what the future of cities means for me. It's amazing that uh, just today's experience is exciting for you that you mentioned in the podcast. You found a 20-minute neighborhood in the suburbs of Melbourne. That's really nice. Let's unpack a bit your terms because you used intergenerational equity and we will get back to the sustainability and accessible aspects as well. But equity is an interesting term because it means a lot of things to a lot of people, even though we think that it means the same for everybody as we do with the smart city idea, for example. So what does this intergenerational equity mean to you? I think intergenerational equity is not just about the meaning, but it's also about what it looks like for the future. I would say in a direct translation, it's about balancing regeneration and depletion in our current populace so that we can provide for the generation of tomorrow. And I think that provision for the generation of tomorrow is what a lot of people will consider as the hallmark of intergenerational equity because it really looks like having enough resources and not only resources but having as I said before the same accessibility to these resources or even improved accessibility to these resources that we have today and that's not just about urban resources and that's not just about public transport but it's also really relevant to our resource consumption and our extractive relationship with the environment. Something that has become really detached in the common citizen is how our relationship with natural resources will actually impact intergenerational equity and how our consistent pattern of consumption impacts that relationship as well. And so I think intergenerational equity is just a summarizing point that says don't use too much right now because then there's not going to be any left for tomorrow. Do you feel that we can create this balance? Are you optimistic about this balance? Because sustainability in the Brundtland report is creating and using resources for today, but also leaving those resources for tomorrow. Do you think that we can create this kind of balance? Are you optimistic about that? I think I'm in two minds, especially as someone who's younger and moving forward into politics, into the economy, into environmentalism. Like, I'm really fresh on the scene here, obviously, and I haven't been present to a lot of the background that's preceded the conditions that we face right now. And I think I feel optimistic that we can do it if we implement the right institutions, like legislative frameworks are really important. If we start regulating emissions in Australia, particularly, that's something that we need to look at with the mining and agricultural industries because their emissions are contributing a lot to our national CO2 output. And also regulating the way that we develop our cities because a lot of Australian culture, because I can only really speak for myself here is about economic development. But obviously, economic development and population growth goes hand in hand with resource exploitation. And the same detachment that I talked about before for consumers is driving this over exploitation. And I think 
that is something that makes me quite fearful or something that I feel a lot of concern about, particularly in predominantly capitalist market where the economic model is incentivizing us to grow and grow. But I don't know if that can change, really, particularly when that is what has founded the Australian economy for so long. So I guess that's a very grey answer to quite a specific question. But I think I would prefer to stay optimistic and look forward to the future with hope and hope that kind of in the same words that someone who I find very influential, Jared Diamond, he said in 2005 that we need to balance our depletion of our resources with the amount that we're regenerating our resources because that regulation has the power to determine whether our cities and populations will survive or collapse. And I think remaining hopeful about that regulation and regeneration is something that I would definitely try to do moving forward into the future. But I think there is a little bit of an undercut of pessimism in just hoping and praying that not just the people who are environmentally conscious will look at the future of our cities and think about these things, but the common man and the government will feel the same way and hopefully that will be eventually reflected in our legislative frameworks. It's amazing to hear that you are choosing to be optimistic and hopeful, even though you have this fear. It's so heartwarming. That's really nice. You talked about how this intergenerational equity is very hard to apply because cities are different and the nuances are very challenging which also goes to sustainability and accessibility. What is sustainability for you? Sustainability, I think, it often becomes conflated with environmental sustainability, and that's something that I would like to move further away from. And I think that's also quite relevant to the way we look at our cities and sustainable cities. It shouldn't just be about our relationship with the environment. Obviously, that's a central component the way we look at sustainability. But I think a really big factor that we need to consider that maybe isn't being considered or maybe is a primary part of the more conservative approach towards sustainability that people are throwing around saying, oh, we shouldn't be focused on sustainability. We should be focused on economic development because we need to feed our population. But that's not true. Sustainability should incorporate all those features of economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, social sustainability. It's about preservation. And I think that's where intergenerational equity really comes into play because they all just become mixed in this melting pot together. And then it's like the sustainability diaspora should include all of these things. And it's not just about conserving our environment. It's also about ensuring that we can feed the population of today and the population of tomorrow. Actually, this paper that I was reading the other day, it was by Catherine Mitchell, and she made a really good point about how the economy directly shapes our relationship with the environment. And the same can be said when we're looking at it in terms of sustainability, because they go hand in hand and they're very deeply interconnected. So we have to make sure that we're not causing poverty. We have to make sure that the impoverished nation of today aren't feeling the burden of us working more and more towards environmentalism when in reality the economy begins to suffer. I think it's a very intricate and careful balance that we need to apply and that kind of summarizes what sustainability is, ensuring that all facets of this really complex network of development are adhered to and we need to ensure that it's not just about economic preservation and it's not just about environmental preservation, it's not just about cultural preservation because everything in a very globalised world particularly is give and take and it has to be give and take, otherwise it becomes unsustainable. So I think sustainability is about balance and it's about interdisciplinary action. Sustainability for you is incorporating economic, environmental and social aspects into the interdisciplinary balance, which we need to carefully establish. And 
I am curious about some parts of the world also include a fourth stream for sustainability, which is cultural sustainability. Do you think that there should be cultural sustainability as a separately highlighted strand or it's included for you in, for example, social sustainability? I think that cultural sustainability is something that should be considered in a broader attempt to achieve equity, but it also should be looked at separately because I think, again, culture and economics do go hand in hand, but they can be a lot more mutually exclusive than economics and the environment. And I think it's really important to not make culture too closely tied up with policy and politics and especially development. Because I think globalization is really driving this culturally homogenous figure that kind of looks like some vaguely ethnic human and you can't really place where they're from. And I think that kind of historical third generation immigrant is what people imagine when they think of a world that's not culturally sustainable. But especially in Australia, protecting cultural sustainability in the terms of incorporating Indigenous practice into our land management, into our built environment, into the way that we move forward with our urban development is really important. And I think Australia actually serves a great example of where cultural sustainability hasn't been protected and it is actually tied up with politics. A thing that makes it more complex is that the way that we work towards sustainability in a colonial and Western culture is inherently different to the way that an Indigenous population or any other nationality works towards sustainability. And I think that you need to acknowledge that these are two different components working towards the same goal, but they need to be separate so that you can integrate them in the way that they should be integrated. Because if you see it as this holistic social sustainability, then a risk that poses is actually saying, oh, we have incorporated Indigenous land management and we have incorporated Indigenous development into our cities because we're achieving social sustainability. But no, that's not true. And I think that cultural sustainability should, in a sense, be kept separate so that it can be integrated to the extent that it should be integrated. And by combining them all together, that can often be glossed over. And so I think maybe they are all working towards equity, but they're working towards different kinds of equity. And it's really important to acknowledge cultural sustainability as something separate because cultural sustainability isn't founded on modern industrialization and it's not founded on the last hundred or so years of technology. It's founded on thousands and thousands of years of history and practice. And that's why incorporating all four of those elements of sustainability together dismisses the rich and really grounded history that these cultures have and that these cultures need to be acknowledged separately to this kind of new and innovative concept of sustainability. And I think to me, that's why I don't necessarily consider them to be a part of the same thing, because I believe that it's almost unfair to equate those two concepts because they come from very different places and they're rooted in very different things. Thank you very much for the clarification. Does this mean that since in your understanding sustainability needs to incorporate economic, environmental, social and partially cultural aspects, that sustainability is different from place to place? I would say yes, definitely. And this kind of ties back to both of our arguments about why this global sustainability framework isn't actually feasible. Like I look at countries in Southeast Asia. So my family is from Malaysia and I'm a first generation immigrant. I'm the first of my family to have been born in Australia on my paternal side, my dad's side. And the way that sustainability needs to be protected in Malaysia versus the way that sustainability needs to be protected in Australia are very different. 
And you could almost extend that even further to countries like Vietnam, which are in a much more dire economic condition than that of Malaysia and Australia. And I think that is where a really good example emerges. Because you have Australia, and in terms of global economy, we're doing quite well. We have the capacity to build infrastructure and provide for the majority of our population. And our average wage is quite high. Our average living standard is quite high. We have access to technology and medicine. Although there's always room for improvement, you can say in a sense that Australia has ticked that box of economic security. Whereas you look at Vietnam and during monsoon season, they don't even have the infrastructure to reconstruct a lot of these cities and fishing ports that are destroyed by monsoons. And that in turn has a trickle-down effect, not only on their economy, but the livelihoods of their citizens and also on the way that they can interact with the marine landscape and protected area management. They can't do that because they don't have the money to do that. And also, why would any of Vietnamese citizens want to advocate towards that when they're like, actually, we have rural fishing communities that are not being protected and their livelihoods are not being protected. So we're not going to work towards environmental sustainability. We need to work towards economic sustainability first. And that is the point that I think I agree with the most and really drives home why we should look at these situations with nuance and with complexity. Because to equate those two countries is completely irrational. If we look at Australia, we're at a position of innovation where we can work towards environmental sustainability. Because that multifaceted approach of intergenerational equity is the bar is slowly becoming higher and higher because we've achieved economic prosperity, we have up and coming social prosperity and indigenous integration. And now our economic model needs to give room for an environmental model as well. Whereas there's a lot of other countries that don't have the opportunities to do that. And I think it would be really unfair from a position of privilege and also from a position of existing in a colonial country to say that these countries that have been ravaged by hundreds of years of war and imperialism, to say, why aren't you focusing on environmentalism? Why aren't you doing this? When really, we're the drivers of that problem and we're the reason that problem exists. I don't think that sustainability and looking at the future of cities can be applied in the same way globally because history then plays a really important role of kind of discerning why each of these countries isn't at the same position and don't have the same economic privileges. And I think that is why, as Australians, we need to be doing more environmentally to ensure that the global community can provide for its own populace as well as the global population as well. It's really a fascinating experiment to talk with people who have different kind of experiences around the world. And for example, we are getting together, we are gathering in Melbourne and we are sharing our different expertise and approaches to these kind of topics. And it's just fascinating to hear that You see this from, for example, a three-level approach that Vietnamese people would think more about their economic well-being. Malaysia is in between, and then Australia, since it has a good economic infrastructure, we could think about more the environmental sustainability. Just as a hilarious question, you talked about environmental preservation Sometimes I have conversations about whether we should preserve nature because nature can't live without us or we should focus more on human preservation because if we destroy our environment, then we can't live on Earth. What do you think? Do we need to focus on environmental preservation or do we need to focus on human preservation? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think you make a really good point that a lot of people, even people in the environmental sphere, are arguing for different sides. But I think they're different sides of the same coin. I think that more anthropogenic perspective, which is the perspective that's focused and fixates humans as the center, and then the environment is other resources which are made available to them that they can extract from, builds exactly that, an extractive relationship. 
Whereas you have new ideas of critical ecology and ecocentrism that are coming through into environmental theory. And although they may be more radical and a lot harder for some people to conceptualize as the environment and its individual ecosystems having intrinsic worth, I think there is a bit of merit to those viewpoints. And I understand I am a human, obviously, but I'm a human that's a part of a much bigger ecosystem. And I think in order for us to protect our natural environment, we need to understand that humans are an addition to natural ecosystems that service and regulate themselves. And if anything, human activity is having a disruptive impact on these ecosystems. If you think about a really basic fundamental of environmental science or biology is food chain division and trophic levels within the food chain. And if you think about how human life and human consumption has absolutely no consideration for what level of the trophic structure that these animals are from, we just pick them out of the water or we pick them out of the forest and that is what we consume, that is what we eat, that's what services us. And I think that kind of summarizes why we need to think of these things from an ecocentric perspective because we can't just for example look at maybe rats if humans started eating rats it's not fair that we just consume and consume and then we look at the population of rats and we say oh this population is depleting we need to regenerate the population of rats but no what you're actually doing is depleting the population of predators and you're also increasing the population of prey and then you're completely disrupting all of these ecological balances that existed in the absence of humans and then that has disastrous effects on the ecosystem especially if it's a keystone species especially if it's an invasive species this understanding of human life being at the center of what is the environment i don't think that's true i think that the environment is the center and the environment should be the fixation. And humans, we just exist in some sphere completely separate to that. And we've just forced our way in to this ecological space without much consideration or concern for the effects that we're having. And I know that is a very theoretical kind of wishy-washy approach that some people may not necessarily agree with. At the crux, what that really means is we need to be ecocentric, not just for the sake of the environment, but also for the sake of humans. This ecocentrism, it services us both, whereas anthropocentrism only services humans. And that is the problem. It's not integrated enough with environmentalism and humanity if we're only taking this approach that humans are here and we exist and the environment exists to service us. Whether you think that or not, ecocentrism is still ultimately a better approach because if you have a greater understanding of how ecology works, of how the ecosystem works, of how individualized effects have critical trickle-down impacts on the rest of the ecosystem, if ultimately you're saying that these are services to human life, then why not enhance your ability to access and harness the resources that these services are making available to us? Whatever way you spin it, whatever reason you're asking this question, that answer comes from ecocentrism. Because the better the understanding is of the system, then the better your capacity to engage with it and whether that engagement is protection, regeneration or extraction, you need to understand it holistically. And so I think when you ask that question and when you say, does it exist for humans or does it exist intrinsically? It matters to me, but on a broader scale, I don't think it matters when you don't have an understanding of how the actual system works. And so the question we should be asking and answering is, do we need to understand this system in terms of its relation to humans? Or do we need to understand this system in terms of its broader relation to the world and environment as a whole? And if that's the question that you ask, then I think the latter is definitely the answer. I really like your saying that it doesn't really matter whether we talk about from environmental perspective or the human perspective, we need to understand the system itself. I personally really admire this approach 
on the other hand, I also understand that translating this approach to a human-centered perspective could possibly engage more people than the ecological perspective because everybody cares about humans because we are humans. But not necessarily everybody wants to know about the nature because not everybody understands that we are part of nature. We need to have a better relationship with nature. That's why it's a very interesting conundrum, but I understand that you are talking about understanding the whole system and the consequences of our actions instead of just focusing on one specific perspective, mm, right? Yeah, definitely. You described the future of cities as urban consolidation mainly and with sustainability and accessibility and intergenerational equity. What are your three biggest fears regarding the future of cities? I think that's a big question, especially for someone who experiences <laughs> a lot of eco-anxiety. I have a lot of fears, especially as a young person and especially as someone who wants to have kids. And I think, what are we leaving behind for our children? And I think that the biggest fear for me is our biocapacity budget and population growth is something that we all need to consider because it's still like on a steady incline. And I think that last year it was sitting somewhere around 0.85%, which is a decrease from the years preceding, but it's still a total increase nonetheless. So what this really means is more population equals more resource consumption because the more we develop, then the more cities we need to erect or the more we need to consolidate our current cities, which is more development. And yeah, again, ultimately more consumption and especially as capital cities, because we live in Melbourne and we have high population density centers. We need to be able to accommodate for that and we need to consider what that's going to look like. And that can be quite a large source of fear. And sometimes I just think, like, how are we going to do that? Because we're already pushing so hard up against our planetary boundaries. And the truth about development means that infrastructure is just going to have to increase and we have more concrete and more agriculture, more electricity, all of these central components of carbon emissions. It's something that I worry about a lot. And I think you say three biggest fears, but I think food energy and greenhouse gas, but they all come down to the same thing. Are we going to be able to regulate the way that this development is occurring and the way that the city accommodates for this development? Or are we just going to drive ourselves into population decline? And it's particularly hard when, for example, we live in Australia and we're in quite a good position, but the reality is it's not just about us. And you look at countries like India, they have the highest greenhouse gas emission in the entire world, and they also have the highest population density. And you wonder, is that skewed balance that is leaning more towards depletion, is that the future of cities? And is that the example that cities are going to model for no fault other than the fact that we weren't able to regulate our resource consumption and the way that was balanced with our increasing populations? But the fear of not being able to mitigate those changes to population size and how that will affect our resource consumption is something that I worry about a lot. The fears are basically how the population growth will put a pressure on our systems, on food generation, energy generation, and greenhouse gas emissions. And you are also worried about whether we are able to regulate in a better way this kind of development or whether we are driving ourselves into extinction without population growth. Lovely fears. <laughs> and I understand why you are anxious. <laughs> this will be a personal question. Do you know why you started to have eco-anxiety and when did this start? It's a good question. And I think everybody has to know their origin story because it I think environmentalism is something that really like grabs you by the hair. And it just says, once you're passionate about this, like you're going to be passionate about this forever. It doesn't go away. 
A lot of people actually ask me this when I switched university degrees. Obviously, a natural question that people in younger social circles say, what are you studying? Oh, you switched degrees. Why are you studying that? I struggled to answer. Weirdly enough, I was very lucky to have gotten in on the whim of a scholarship that I wasn't even going to apply for to a very affluent high school. And then because of that and because it was very discordant with the way that I grew up and the backgrounds of a lot of the children there were not in any way congruent with my own background. I got swept up into it and I think there was an opportunity there for me to really become a part of that collective mindset and I think the wealthy in Victoria and Australia particularly have the pleasure of treating ignorance as an option because for them they're going to be the last who are impacted by climate change and the last who really feel these pressures of resource insecurity, particularly in comparison to those who are less advantaged. There's people, and I can say for my family particularly, who have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table. And there's a lot of other people in this city who have to worry about that as well because of inflation. But if you're wealthy, that doesn't really impact you. And I think seeing the lifestyles of this more affluent group of people and feeling really insecure about my own lifestyle because obviously as a teenager everything's about how you're going to be perceived very selfishly and narcissistically it's not about whether your family has food to eat or not it's about oh what are my friends going to think about the fact that I have some average sandwich for lunch and I can't go to the canteen and buy food like them and it started from a very simple and self-absorbed place really of insecurity and this fear of not fitting in and then as I grew up and I matured and obviously it became more about my family I started to think about why that was the case and why these pressures were being put so significantly on my family and not on everybody else around me and then at first it became an economic thing and then it became a cultural thing and then as I slowly became a part of the world of youth politics and I got more involved in advocacy and action in my social groups outside of school, environmentalism kind of went hand in hand with that because I think when you're young, you're fighting for everything. You're just fighting for a better world and I think whatever movement there is, jump on it because the world of campaign and advocacy at that point is really exciting and it's a collective movement. And then I think as you become older, you have to pick your battles based on your passion and your interests. And I think just the way I progressed through school, I became really interested in global politics and legal studies, which, again, really could have pushed me in the direction of advocating for racism or feminism, which I still do, obviously. Not for racism, oh my gosh, against racism. But I think that somewhere along the way, I just got tied up in environmentalism because I see environmentalism really as something that sits at the heart of all these issues and the way that resources are not made available to certain people or the way that we have to compete for resources in certain economies or certain economic structures. I was like, why is this happening? And then I just kept looking into it because it was something that started to really anger me. And I think this passion was founded on anger and frustration. And then it came down to the fact that resource instability and resource inequity is driving all of these issues. The fact that we don't have enough resources for everybody and the fact that this competition has become founded on some twisted hierarchy seemed really unfair to me. And the way that the planet was being impacted because of that exploitation and then subsequent insecurity, that made me the most angry. I was like, why are we doing this to the earth? And how come all of the rich people get to do it? And how come they get to do it so much more? And then there's people in the street with their families that can't put food on the table. It just makes no sense. And although that, again, really could have been summarized somewhere in economics or anti-racism, 
it just became attached to environmentalism for me somehow along the way. So I guess I don't really have an answer for you. It's a combination of a lot of different things, but I could attribute it a lot to high school and I could also attribute it a lot to anger, which gradually turned into anxiety the more I invested time in it. And that is a scary thing. It feels a bit like Sisyphus because the further you get up the hill, the further away the end seems. And it does seem like a little bit of an endless battle. And as you continue along that path of environmentalism, it is anxiety inducing. It's just naturally anxiety inducing because although I say that I'd like to say optimistic, it is really easy to sometimes think that it's never going to get better and it's never going to end. And that lack of finality or conclusiveness is really the center of the fear, I think. I am really sorry that you better with this anxiety. Although I must say that from this kind of anger and passion can come wonderful things. For example, my PhD started from the disappointment that the design industry could do so much more for cities and there was nobody really talking about this. So here I come, 26 years old, young, basically a child. And I have to make order among these very famous, very honorable people. And I have to come and make some order. And come on, guys, let's do it better. I understand where you are coming from with this kind of anger. And I really liked your saying that when you are young, you are just fighting for everything. And when you mature, you will choose your battles. It's very invigorating to see that you are choosing your battles based on your interests and passions. You are choosing to be hopeful and it's not easy, but let's switch just a bit and let's talk about the opportunities. What are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? Opportunities also play a lot into strengths in this context, because I think a lot of opportunity, particularly for Melbourne and cities in general, comes from what is already there. And the National Geographic in 2020, they published this great set of two articles and they were titled The Optimist Guide and The Pessimist Guide to Climate Change. And I read them both. The Optimist Guide, it was very hopeful. I think The Pessimist Guide had some good points, but in terms of looking at opportunities and what we can do moving forward, Emma Maris, the author, made a great point about the fact that the opportunities that we have for change and development in our cities and moving toward the climate change comes from technology that's already there. And I really agree with that. And that's why I say I think that the strengths and opportunities are all tied into one. Because as equally important as innovation is, We do have some fantastic technology that has emerged in the last even decade or multiple decades across the globe. Like you can look at renewable energy as an example. And I think a lot of people are becoming really fatigued by the renewable energy argument. And I acknowledge right now that as it stands, we don't have the capacity for our baseload to rely on renewable technology, but that is exactly where the argument lies right now. We don't have the capacity, but we can have the capacity. And that is where that opportunity comes from, the strengths that we have already developed in Australia and the way that we've invested a lot into this technology can only increase. And I think a great example of this renewable action, and not necessarily just in energy, but also in the broader sense of an economy that's more circular or an economy that works more towards harnessing natural and greener techniques of development. And a great example of this is Vivian Tam. She's doing some fantastic studies in Sydney and she's looking at the recycling of aggregate concretes. And I think it's through, I'm very blurry on the details of this because I am no engineer. She's looking at two-stage mixing and it's really amazing. And the result of this is just slashing the carbon output of concrete and infrastructure development because 
as a lot of people who are very environmental know that our three biggest contributors to fossil fuel outputs are our concrete and our agriculture and our fossil fuel use. By using the technology that's already there, we develop this opportunity. So I would say the first opportunity that we have is for innovation of current technology. And then secondly, I think that transport and accessibility is a really big up and coming opportunity, especially for green methods of transport, because transport has such a ridiculous contribution to carbon emissions in Australia. And I think that planners and developers are really having to start considering these things because we can't keep commuting in cars forever. And there was actually an article recently that was making a mockery of Melbourne cycling transport lane in comparison to the obvious examples like the Netherlands. It's laughable how Melbourne can say that they're facilitating riding through the city. And I agree. I think it's not as easy as it's made to be over there. And it's also not as much of a dominant form of transport. So I think that for planners, developers, construction companies, something that we should be considering and something that we should be harnessing the opportunity for, greener transport methods. Public transport is a great example. Melbourne has the world's longest tram line. I watched this random video on YouTube the other day and the tram line, I don't know the number, but between Docklands and Vermont South holds the Guinness World Record for the longest consecutive tram line, which is just ridiculous, but also a testament to Melbourne and how expansive our public transport network has the opportunity to be. And if we were just extending the number of trams, the number of buses, and albeit we are doing that large-scale development with the Metro Tunnel right now, and I think that is a really good thing that we should be looking at and watching that space. Yeah, it's fantastic. And public transport also ties into that idea of 20-minute neighbourhoods, walkability, accessibility, and also, obviously, walkability. It's another great one that we should be considering. Urban consolidation ties into that. If we can walk around to access our goods and services and where we can't walk, we have alternative transport methods like cycling or public transport or even seeing a lot more Lime scooters pop up in the city. Obviously, not everybody's going to be using a Lime scooter and not everybody likes to use Lime scooters. But I remember the first time in Melbourne when they tried to introduce O-bikes and O-bikes were just like these ridiculous electric bikes that I don't even actually remember if they were electric and everyone just made an immense joke out of it. And then hundreds of them ended up in the Yarra and it actually was completely redundant because it had an opposite effect and just increased pollution. But now we've done this Lime rebrand and it's really worked. It has really worked for Melbourne and for cities in Australia. And I think that's another opportunity, increasing alternative methods of transport outside of commuting through your car. That's a really big one. And finally, probably something that's a little bit broad and again, feels a bit like that Sisyphus kind of case, but legislation and government action. It's obvious and it's idealistic, but it's true because a lot of how the city interacts with its natural environment and how the built and natural environment are allowed to relate is determined by government legislation and not just planning legislation, but also environmental legislation. Because we need these frameworks to govern environmentally sustainable planning and development. Emissions caps, carbon regulation, the mechanisms that we have in Australia right now are really limited. And like, why are Australian cities still being funded by monoculture agriculture? Why isn't the government investing more into the regenerative agriculture resurgence? This whole fear of pushing on our biocapacity budget and not working towards a sustainable future, it's almost being exacerbated by a lack of government action. And something that Emma Maris also said in that National Geographic article is, 
as much as we'd like to push conscious consumerism and as much as people transitioning diets, transitioning transport options, decreasing their own energy uses, et cetera, et cetera. We need to incentivize environmentalism in our legislation. And that can be said for the economically privileged position of Australia, of the United Kingdom, America, of France. And it can also be said for other countries. And obviously the degree to which that is going to occur will differ significantly for countries which are lower in socioeconomic development. And that's not their fault, but it's the framework that needs to exist. And that framework doesn't just mean emissions caps and it doesn't just mean carbon regulation, but it also ties back to what you were saying earlier about integrating that cultural sustainability into the broader concept of urban planning and development. Because we have the oldest living culture on their land, actually, is where Australia exists. So I just cannot understand why. Indigenous land practice was so sustainable and maintained the land for thousands and thousands of years. Obviously, we're undergoing a different type of developmental transformation, but in terms of our relationship with the natural environment, why don't we integrate Indigenous practice into our legislation? We just need more rigid frameworks that can be applied to incentivize sustainable development. Because without these frameworks that impose sanctioned relationship where punitive ramifications can be installed when necessary, nobody's going to change. And our infrastructural model and developmental model isn't going to change. We need more demanding frameworks and they need to come from our government. And I think that is a really big opportunity, especially with what's happening in Australia right now with the vote to parliament for a voice, Indigenous voice, that is a framework that needs to be included. And although that may seem really abstract and may not seem that attached to the future of our development, I think it's more attached than people like to think. So that's a really big opportunity and an opportunity that is right on the horizon for a lot of Australian citizens too. I would also add to these opportunities the younger generation with their anger and passion towards let's do something already. <laughs> but I would like to come back just for a second to this legislation part. It's fascinating to hear how Australians are looking towards the government to require something better. I come from a culture which doesn't really do that from their government. So we don't really look towards the government to show us better options or innovation or better solutions. And it's upon us people to do those better things. Why should the government lead the way? I think that, and this also has a lot to do with what I initially mentioned about economic policy. But our government is deeply connected to the country's economic model, which in turn is connected to our relationship with the environment. And so this kind of nationalist government idea of economic development is what is founding our relationship with the environment now. And it's founding this extractive relationship for our cities and so I think the government actually has a really big role in influencing the common ideological principle within the country. And obviously, not everyone is going to agree. We live in a democratic country and we have free and fair elections and those elections are dominated by two major parties. But they don't have much environmental policy included in kind of the ideals and the dogma of those parties. And I think if we were to slowly see that coming through for our government, that has a top-down effect. Like people look at this and they look at the model, especially like young children coming through who, although they may not understand when they're younger, if they see this environmentally friendly infrastructure being developed and they see ecologically sustainable infrastructure, you begin to accept it as the norm. And I think the example about riding bikes in the Netherlands, particularly Amsterdam, is a really good example. 
the government has enabled planning and legislation to allow for the integration of these bike lanes into the city centre. And so you do that and you provide the opportunity for this environmentally friendly integration. And then slowly and slowly, one by one, people start to jump on the train with it. People doing it and then you think, oh, what if I did that? And we're social beings. We want to belong as part of a collective. And if that collective is working towards environmentalism, then that starts to become the norm. And as well as introducing normative frameworks that can become integrated into our social structure, the government is also responsible for regulating big corporations. I think people are turning towards the government because they're sick and tired of companies looking down at us and saying, why aren't you bringing your keep cup every day? Or why are you still using single-use plastics? And if no, why are you still producing single-use plastics? If we eliminate that supply from the market, the subsequent demand can't follow. It's a two-way street, which has been painted as a one-way street. And the government is putting all of this accountability on consumers and citizens to find more ecologically sustainable ways of developing our cities and developing our consumption patterns. But that's not true. If we were introducing subsidies for farmers who could produce more environmentally friendly produce, then in turn, on the receiving end, me as a consumer, I'm not being forced to pay a 50% markup for ecologically sustainable produce. And I'm not going to the shops and looking at this $1 loaf of bread or this $17 loaf of bread. That's a ridiculous example because people who are not in Australia, bread is not $17, but just bear with me. And I'm not looking at that and thinking, oh, but the barley and the crepe was grown on a regenerative agriculture farm. And so me as this student with a $600 a week income, I'm going to buy the $17 loaf of bread because I support the environment. No, that's not true. Our choices affect our relationship with the environment. But you need to be aware that the government has the capacity to change that. If they were subsidizing greener technology and they were subsidizing greener agriculture, greener construction, for the health of the city, that improves everything. It's all connected and the government has the capacity to introduce legislative and economic frameworks to rectify that ridiculous and disproportionate inflated economic relationship between using the example of the farm and the bread and the consumer, the government can fix that and it can help for consumers to consume their products in a greener and more sustainable way. And I think that is why young people in Australia are turning to the government because they're like, you're not doing enough. And I think in Europe, that's not happening because the government has actually intervened where necessary. Switzerland and Norway have funded a lot of green technology and a lot of green energy. Whereas in Australia, we have these stable arguments like we put 300 million into solar energy development last year, and then they use that. And that's the hallmark of their environmental policy. But really, they're also putting 2 billion into the mining industry. So it's actually a very disproportionate representation of what the people want because the government's ideology isn't in line with what the people are demanding. And so that is why I think we look to the government because we're like, hey, we're here. We've changed. We have more awareness. We have green attitudes. So why aren't you changing with us? And I think for countries that are less homogenous, like Australia, comparative to countries that are more politically homogenous, like a lot of Europe, it's for me easy to see why we're turning to the government. Because a lot of frustration is felt that it's not representing what the people actually want to see. What amazes me is that you described how the government has a big role, and I completely agree with that, and that how the younger generation and the older generation as well is now turning to the government to demand other solutions than the traditional ones. So it seems that you are saying the government has a specific role providing these frameworks. Okay, that will be a bit of twisting what you said. 
So the government can't do it without the people demanding it. So people also have a role in going to the government, saying that we changed, we want something else, and then the government will be basically forced to change their ways. Yeah, right? because in this case, the government can't do it without the people, but the people also can't do it without the government. Governments have some roles. People have some roles. What is your role in establishing the future of cities? I think, obviously, advocacy, campaigning for change. But on a more personal and ideological level, if I'm not thinking about the community around me and I'm applying this only to myself, I think something that I can definitely work on in terms of environmentalism is my detachment with consumerism and materialism. And I read this fantastic piece earlier this week, actually, and it was called Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth About Climate Change. And in the third chapter, it depicts why and how this consumer self has developed. And I think that some points that were being made about how in order to detach from our consumerism, we also have to detach from ourselves because being a consumer in the market and the things that we own and the status or feeling or symbols that these things and objects supply to us actually define a lot about the way that we feel about ourselves. For example, clothing, especially in Melbourne and as someone who is younger, clothing is seen as a really big expression of yourself. And becoming more environmentally conscious has led me to question that. Like, why am I attaching this sense of self to something material? Isn't that kind of just buying in to this idea of consumerism? And it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how I consume and how I buy things and how that principle of becoming detached from the ramification of my actions. Clothing is just an example, but it's a very broad pattern of behavior that does actually relate to the future of cities. For example, why am I choosing to use my car instead of riding a bike? Like it's my responsibility to make those changes and demand those changes from the government, but also ensure that my actions reflect what I am fighting for. And I think that can become very conflated with the notions of conscious capitalism. But a really important thing to think about is to question yourself and push yourself to grow and change. And why am I doing this? Why am I making these decisions? Why am I using the amount of water that I'm using? Why am I buying the foods that I'm buying? Obviously, the economy right now is hard. And especially for a young person whose income is limited, you can't always make the best decisions for the environment, but it's about fostering this understanding of who you are as a consumer and how that deplores you to consume and just thinking about it, just being aware of it and being aware of your actions and how your actions have real and tangible ramifications that will affect the global community. Obviously, you're not moving mountains. You're not engaging with war. There's a lot of things that will affect the global community that you can't really control and that your city can't really control. But the way that you engage with your city and the way that you have opportunities to engage with your city, the Victorian Planning Commission or one of those websites that's engaged with planning consultation and submission in Victoria, they have open submissions. If people want to become involved in advocacy and campaign and like, changing their actions to ensure that they're more congruent with their awareness. There's opportunities for that. And getting involved as a citizen, whether it's submissions, whether it's campaigning, whether it's advocacy, whether it's citizen science, I think that's something we can all work towards. And it can look like something bigger. It can look like volunteering. It can look like revegetation. Or for some people who are constrained by time, it can look like making small changes. It can look like taking your bike instead of taking your car. But it's about that conscious awareness and conscious choice and removing that detached idea that your actions don't have direct impacts. I think the real change that we can make in establishing the future of our cities is 
an ideological change and more of an understanding about how we are contributing to the future of cities and the future of the environment. Amelia, thank you so much for your time and your hopeful enthusiasm for a better future. I could ask you for hours, but I want to be cautious of your day as well. So as the last question, do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? That point about ideological change and working towards something that's ecocentrism, although people aren't necessarily going to agree with that, something I would like to at least leave here today in this space is a gentle encouragement for people to consider changing the way they relate to the environment and changing the way the environment relate to the future of cities. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. It was really interesting to hear through Amelia the passion of the younger generation, not to mention her advocating for Aboriginal value inclusion. Michael Brown talked about the Aboriginal ideas for the urban context in episode 159. You can find out more about Amelia online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Amelia's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?